This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic. This week, I chat with Dennis Bauer about serverless for scientific research. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 94. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Dennis Bauer. Hey, Dennis, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to be on your show. So you are a group lead at CSIRO and an honorary associate professor at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. So I would love it if you could explain uh, and tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what CSIRO does. Yeah, so CSIRO is Australia's government research agency. And Macquarie University is one of Australia's Ivory League universities. And they've been working together on really translating research into products that people can use in their everyday life. So specifically, they worked together in order to invent Wi-Fi, which is now used in 5 billion devices worldwide. But CSIRO has also collaborated with other universities and, for example, has developed the first treatment for influenza. Mm -hmm. And on a lighter note, has developed um, a recipe book, the Total Wellbeing Diet Book, which is now on the book bestseller list alongside Harry Potter and the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> so from that perspective, CSR really has um, this nice balance between product that people need and product that people enjoy. All right. And what's your background? So my background is in bioinformatics, which means that in my undergraduate, um, I was together with uh, students that did IT courses, math, stats as well as medicine and um, molecular biology. And then in the last year of the study, all of this was brought together in sort of a specialized way of really focusing on what bioinformatics is, which is using computers in, in you know, back in the days, it was high performance compute um, in order to analyze massive amounts of life science data. Today, this is of course cloud computing for me at least. Right. Right. Well, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty amazing. So today's episode, uh, you I've seen you talk a number of times, um, all remotely, unfortunately. And I hope one day that um, you know I'll be able to see you you speak in person when we can start <laughs> traveling again. Um, but uh, I, I've seen you speaking a lot about the scientific research that's being done and the work that Cyro's doing, um, and and more specifically how you're doing it with serverless and how serverless is sort of enabling you, um, you know, to to do some of these things in a way that probably um, was only possible for really large institutions in the past. So um, I want to focus this episode really on this idea of serverless for scientific research, because I know we're going to talk about COVID later. We can talk about, you know, a couple of other things, um, but really it's a much broader thing. And I had a, I had a conversation with Lynn Langett before um, we were talking about big data and, uh, and the role that that plays in genomics and some of these other things and how, you know, the, just the cloud accelerates, uh, you know, people's ability to do that. So maybe maybe we can start before we get into the serverless part of this. Um, we could just kind of take a step back and you could give me a little bit more context on the type of research that that you that you and, and your organization has been doing. Yeah, so my group is the transformational bioinformatics group. So again, translating research into something that affects the real world. In our case, that usually is medical practice, because we want to research human health and improve 
um, you know, disease treatment um, and all of this management going forward. And for that, data is really critical. It's sort of the one thing that separates a hunch from actually something that um, you can point to and say, okay, this is the evidence moving forward. And from there, you can incrementally improve and you know that you're going in the right direction rather than just exploring the space. Right, right. And that's, and you mentioned data. I mean, again, data is one of those things where, uh, and I, I know this is something you mentioned in your talks, where the importance of data or the amount of data, like, and what you can do with that is becoming almost as important, if not just as important as, you know, the actual clinicians on the front line actually treating disease. Um, so could you expand upon that a little bit? Like what, what role does data play? And maybe you give us an example of, um, you know, where data helped make better decisions. Yeah. So a very recent example is, of course, with COVID, where no one knew anything really at the beginning. I mean, coronaviruses were studied, but not to that extent. Um, so the information that we had beginning of a pandemic were very um, basic. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, when you know nothing about a disease, the first thing you need to do is collect information. And back then, you know, we did not have that information and actions were needed. So some of the decisions that had to be made back then were based on, you know, those hunters and those previous assumptions that were, you know, made about other diseases. So, for example, in the UK, um, they defined their strategy based on how influenza behaved and how it spread. And we now know that it's vastly different how influenza is spreading and how coronavirus is spreading. So therefore, in the course of the action, more research was done. And based on that, they adjusted, and probably the whole world adjusted, the way um, how they managed or interfered with the, with the disease. And I think, you know, we, we now know that whatever we did at the beginning was not as good as what we're doing now. Right. So therefore, data is absolutely critical. Right. And, and, the, and the problem with medical data, I would assume, um, is one that it's massive, right? There's just so much of it out there. And when we, we're going to start talking about, um, you know, genomics and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and gene sequencing and things like that. So I can imagine there's a lot of data um, in every sample there. Um, and so you've got this massive amount of data that you need to deal with. And so I want to, I do want to get into that a little bit, but um, maybe we can start, um, you know, getting into this idea of, you know, sort of genome editing and things like that and where serverless fits in there. Yeah, absolutely. So my group researches two different areas. One is genome analysis, where we try to understand disease genes, predict risk, for example, of developing heart disease and diabetes in the future. But the other element is around doing something, treating actual patients mm -hmm. with novel technology. And this is where genome editing or genomic surgery comes in, where the aim is to cure diseases that previously thought to be incurable genetic diseases. And the aim of genome engineering is to go into a living cell and make a change in the genome at a specific location at a specific time without um, you know, any interference of accidentally editing other genes. And this is a massively complicated task on a molecular level, but also on a guidance level, on a computational level, which is where serverless comes in. Right. Now, this is, the, this is that CRISPR thing, right? Exactly. So CRISPR is the genome engineering or genome editing uh, machinery. It's basically a nanomachinery that goes into your cell, finds the right location in the genome, and makes that edit at that spot. 
Right. So then how do you find the spot that you're supposed to edit? Mm-hmm. So CRISPR is um, programmable. So as IT people, we can easily relate to that in that it basically is a string search. It goes through the genome, which is 3 billion letters, and it finds a specific string that you program it with. And therefore, this particular string needs to be precisely, you know, needs to find the, or needs to provide the landing pad for this machinery to actually interact with the DNA because you can't interact at any location. Right. So from that perspective, it's like finding the right grain of sand on a beach. It has to be the right shape, the right size, and the right color for this machinery to actually be able to interact with the genome, which, of course, you know, is very complicated. But it doesn't stop there because we want it to be only editing a specific gene and not accidentally editing another, you know, correct gene. And therefore, this particular landing pattern or the string needs to be unique enough in the three billion letters of the genome in order to not accidentally fear it away. Right. So therefore, this particular string needs to be compared to all the other potential binding sites in the genome to make sure that it's unique enough to attract faithfully this machinery. And this particular string is actually very short. Therefore, when you, when you think of the combinatorics, it's a hugely complicated problem that requires a lot of computational methods in order to um, get us there. Yeah, I can imagine. So then, so then in order for you to, so before CRISPR can go in and, and even identify that spot, um, I'm assuming there's more research that goes into understanding even where that spot is, right? Like how, like how you would even find that spot within, uh, within the sequence genome. Yeah, of course. So of course, if the first thing you need to find out is what kind of gene do you actually want to edit? You know, where where is the problem? And this is the first part of my, my group's research of finding the disease genes, of really identifying, and even within the, um, a gene, because it has a complicated structure, even within the gene, you need to find the location that is actually um, most beneficial to for the machinery to interact with. And this is where we developed the search engine for the genome, where it's a web page where researchers can type in the gene that they want to edit, and the machine or the, the computational then goes in and finds the right spot, you know, right shape, color and size, binding site, mm-hmm. but also makes sure that it's unique enough compared to all the other sites. Right. And so this search engine, like exactly how does this how does this work? Explain explain this. Uh, like what, what's the architecture of it? Yeah. So in order to build the search engine for the genome, we wanted to have something that is always online, that researchers can go in at any time of the day and trigger off or kick off this massive compute, which means we, you know, in order to do that in the cloud, we would have the option of having massive easy to instance running 24 seven, mm-hmm. which of course would have broken the bank. Right. Or we could have used an auto scaling group where you know it would eventually scale, scale out to the massive amount of compute in order to serve that um, that task, but researchers tend to not have a lot of patience when it comes to online tools and online um, um, analysis. Therefore, it needed to be something that could be done within seconds, and therefore an auto scaling group wasn't an option either. So therefore, the only thing that we could do was use serverless. So this, the server, uh, search engine for the genome is built on serverless architecture. And back then, we built it like four years ago. That was um, one of the first 
real-world architectures that did something more complicated than serve a um, Alexa skill. Right, right. And you can't, you obviously can't fit 4 billion letters into a single Lambda function. So how how do you how do you actually use something like Lambda, which is stateless, um, you know, to basically load all that data to be able to to search it? Yeah, exactly. That was the first problem that we actually ran into. And back then, we weren't really um, aware of this problem. Back then, it was even the resource requirements were even less. So therefore, it wasn't only the memory issue, but it was also the time um, timing out right. issue. So therefore, we we figured, okay, well, how about Rather than processing this one task in one go, we could break it up into smaller chunks, parallelize it. Right. And this is exactly what we've done with a serverless architecture in that we used SNS topic in order to um, send the payload of which region in the genome a specific Lambda function should analyze. And then from there, the result of that Lambda function was then put into a DynamoDB database, sort of in an asynchronous way of mm-hmm. collecting all the information. And after all of this was done, um, the summary was then sent back to the user. So like a fan in, fan out pattern. That's exactly right. Right. Cool. So then um, where where were you storing the the genome, uh, genome data? Was that in like S3? Exactly. So this particular one is in S3. We did experiment with other options, like um, having a database or having Athena work with Mm. that. But the problem was that the interaction wasn't quite as seamless as S3. Because in bioinformatics, we do have a lot of um, tricks around the indexing of large flat files. And therefore, any other solution that was in there in order to shortcut this wasn't as good as wasn't as efficient as this purpose built um, indexing approaches. So therefore, having the files just sit on S3 and query from there was the most efficient way of doing things. Right. And so, is it just are you just searching through like one sequence, or are there like thousands of sequences that you're searching through as as part of this? And then like how did how were they stored? Were you storing like four billion letters in one flat file, or are they all multiple files? Like how does that work? Yeah, so it is four uh, three thousand, uh, three billion letters in one flat file. Oh, did I say four billion? Sorry, <laughs> three billion. <laughs> three billion letters in one flat file, <clears throat> um, and and the indexing in order to um, not start from the beginning but jump in straight at you know where that where that letter is. It depends on the application case as well. Like if you're searching one reference genome. Which is basically what it's called when you um, when you search a specific genome for a specific uh, species, for example, human. Then that for human it typically is one genome. But if you have if you search bacterial data or viral data, that can be multiple uh, multiple organisms in one file. So it really depends on the application case. Awesome. Yeah, I'm just curious of, of how that how that actually works because I can see this being a solution for other big data problems as well, like being able to search through a massive amount of text um, in parallel and, and breaking that up. So that is, um, that's, that's pretty cool. So, um, so in terms of, you know, this, so basically what you're doing is you're using Lambda here sort of as that 
parallelized supercomputer, right? And sort of as high performance compute. Um, so from a like from a cost standpoint, you know, you mentioned having this running all the time would be sort of insane to run all the time. So how did how how do you see the cost differ? I mean, is this something that is like dramatically different? I mean, where like anybody can use this or is it something where, you know, it's it, it's still still somewhat cost prohibitive? Anyone can use it for sure. So we've, um, not for this application, but for another application, we made a side-by-side -side comparison of running it the standard way in the cloud, which was with EC2 instances and databases and things like that. And the task that we looked at was around $3,000 a month. And this was for hosting human data uh, for rare disease research. Whereas using serverless, we can bring that down to $15 a month, wow. which is like less than a cup of coffee to advance you know, human research. So to me, that is absolutely a no-brainer <laughs> to go into this area. <laughs> I would say. Um, so, so what other like what are the tricks might have you been using, or might you have been using to um, you know speed up some of this processing? Like in terms of like loading the data and things like that, were there any um, anything that you could use to you know where you could use serverless to power that? Well, we looked at uh, Parquet indexing um, as one of the the other solutions, and that was um, that worked for the um, massive supermassive files in the human space really well. But again, it comes down to indexing S3. Um, there was nothing really spe special around the serverless access. In saying that, one of the big benefits of serverless, again, is the being able to parallelize it, right. which means the data doesn't have to be in one account. It can be spread over multiple accounts, mm -hmm. and you just point the Lambda functions to the multiple accounts and then collect back the results. And this is something that we've done, for example, for the COVID research, where we did the parallelization in a different in a different way. So by now, because genome research, there's always the problem of having to deal with large data. Serverless is our first, um, you know, we were always going to serverless first. And therefore, we came against this problem of uh, running out of resources in a Lambda function very frequently. Right. Therefore, we came up with this whole range of different parallelization patterns that serve you know, anything from completely asynchronous, the um, GT scan is where you resolve the data back in a DynamoDB to um, synchronous approaches where you don't necessarily have to collect, um, sorry, asynchronous approaches where you don't actually have to collect the data back to completely synchronous approaches where you basically have to monitor everything that you do and um, make sure that everything is running in serial in order to collect the data back together. Right. So you. So I, I, let's get into the COVID response here, because I know um, there was quite a bit of work that uh, uh, that your organization did around that. So um, before we get into the pattern differences, what what exactly was the involvement of CSIRO in the uh, in the Australian government's response to coronavirus? Yeah. So we were fortunate in having in working together with CEPI, which is the international consortium um, sponsored by the Gates Foundation, which way back when was preparing for disease X, mm -hmm. pandemic X to come. And it was curious that only a year later, COVID hit. So all this pre-work in order set in setting up this hypothetical disease in the future, and only a year yet later, it actually was needed. So therefore, CSRO and CEPI had already put everything in place in order to have a rapid response to should the pandemic hit, 
um, being able to test the vaccine development or the efficacy in animal models. That was the part that CSR was tasked to do. But in order to do that, <clears throat> because with pathogen RNA viruses in this particular case, we know that they mutate, which means they change slightly their genome in every replication cycle. Mm -hmm. And so we've heard about the, um, the England strain or the South, South African strain right. um, being slightly different. So with every mutation, there can be, there is a risk that the, that the vaccine might not be working anymore, might not be efficient anymore. And therefore, the first task we needed to find out was where, where is this whole global pandemic heading? Is it muting, mutating away in a certain direction? And is that direction something that we should put the future disease research on rather than focusing on the current strains that are available? And so therefore, we've done the first study around this particular question of how the virus is mutating and whether the future vaccine development is actually jeopardized by that. Good news was that coronavirus is mutating relatively slowly mm -hmm. and therefore the changes that we've observed back then and likely now nowadays as well is probably not going to affect vaccine efficacy dramatically. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, New Relic. Now, some people need dozens of tools to visualize their stack, but not you, because you've got New Relic Navigator, which means you can see your entire system in one place. New Relic Navigator shows you system-wide health at a glance. All your hosts, services, containers, and anything else you can monitor are in one dense hex view with traffic signal colors to give you an instant picture of what's alerting. And you can sort by platform, service, app, or any other tag, which may makes it easy to navigate your entire system and see what needs your attention. It's all included as part of full stack observability, so one user gets you access to New Relic Navigator and everything else you love about New Relic. Go to newrelic.com, sign up for free, and start getting answers faster than ever. You had mentioned in another talk that you gave um, something about being able to look at those different variants and trying to identify like the things that were close to uh, like the the peaks or whatever that were close to one another so you could determine how far apart each individual variant was or something like that. I, I again, I know nothing about this stuff. So um, but I just I, I thought I thought that was kind of fascinating where it was like, I don't know if it was a uh, you could look at the different strains and figure out if different markers had something to do with whether or not it was more dangerous or, or more um, uh, or more um, uh, they were easier to spread and things like that. So I found that sort of to be really, uh, really interesting. Yeah. So the different properties, again, um, with those with those mutations, we don't know what actually could come out of this because, again, coronaviruses are not studied to that extent to really make sure, to really be confident to say, well, a change here would definitely cause this kind of effect. Right. And therefore, coming back to a purely data-driven approach, and that's what we've done. In um, so we've we've converted each virus which with its twenty thousand uh, letters in its sequence into a KMER profile. So KMER being little strings, um, little, little words, and we collected how often a specific word appeared in that, um, in that letter. So basically, um, serializing it or hot, one hot encoding, if mm -hmm. you want. And with that kind of information, we were running a principal component analysis in order to put it on a 2D map. 
And then from there, each distance between a dot, which represents a particular virus strain, to the next dot represents the evolutionary distance between those two entities. And from there, we can then overlay the time component to see if it's moving away um, from its origin. And we do know that this is happening because with every mutation, it gets passed on to the next generation of viruses and it mutates then and so on. So it does slightly drift away from the first, um, the first instance that we, that we recorded. And this is what we've done with machine learning in order to identify um, and, and create this 2D map for researchers to really have a um, sort of an, uh, an understanding and a, a way of monitoring how fast it's actually moving and whether that pace is accelerating or not. So currently there are 500,000 um, instances of the viruses collected from around the world. Mm -hmm. So 500,000 times 20,000 the length of the genome. That is 10 billion um, data points that we need to analyze in order to really monitor where this whole pandemic is going. Right, and, this, and so are you using a similar uh, infrastructure to do that, or is that is that different? We are, although in this particular case, we had to actually give up on serverless, in that the, the actual compute that we're doing is not done on serverless, it is an EC2 instance, but the EC2 instance is triggered by um, a serverless, and the rest of this whole thing is handled and um, and managed by a serverless instance. Eventually, eventually we're um, planning on making it serverless, but um, it requires some re-implementation of the traditional approaches where we right. just didn't have time for at the moment. Right, now is that because of the machine learning aspect? It's not necessarily the machine learning aspect, it's more the, um, the traditional methods of generating these, um, these distances, if you want. There's, a, there's another element to it, which is around creating phylogenetic trees, which is basically a similar way of, of recording the, um, the, the genetic distances between two. So you can think of this like the tree of life, where you have the humans and the apes and so on, right? And a phylogenetic tree is basically, is basically that, except for only the, um, the coronavirus space. And in order to create that, we needed to use traditional approaches which use massive amounts of memory. And there was no way of um, us paralyzing it, you know, in one of those clever ways to right. really, um, you know, bring it down into the memory constraints of a Lambda function yet. But you say yet, so you think that it is possible though that you could definitely build this uh, in a serverless way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a matter of paralyzing it you know, with one of our clever <laughs> uh, paralyzation methods that we develop now. So another COVID approach, for example, um, which we implemented from scratch, we're using um, serverless parallelization in a different way. So here we're using recursion in order to break down these tasks um, in a more dynamic way, which would basically be required in, um, in the tracking approach as well. So here with this one, the approach is around... Um, being able to trace the origin of um, infection. So imagine someone comes in to a pathology lab and um, it is not quite clear where they got the infection from. Therefore, the um, social tracing is happening, interviews where they've been, 
um, who they get in contact with and so on. But also molecular tracing can happen where you can look at the specific profile, the mutation profile that that individual has and compare it to all the 500,000 um, virus strains that are known from around the world. And the ones closest to it are probably close to the origin where someone got it from. And therefore, being able to quickly compare this profile with the uh, 10 billion entities that are online that you can uh, that you can compare with was a task. And therefore, doing that serverless was what we what we've developed. So this is, um, it's called. Um, the path beacon approach, because beacon is a, um, a protocol in the human in the human health space that we adapted, and it's completely serverless. So what it does is it breaks down um, the task of uh, recording all those ten billion elements out there. It breaks it down into dynamic chunks because we don't necessarily know how much mutations are in each element of the human uh, of the of the genome and therefore sometimes there might be two or three mutations and sometimes there might be thousands of them right therefore first um paralyzing it in larger chunks and then if necessary and the lambda function would be running out of time we can split off two new lambda functions that handle subtasks and so on so therefore we can um, process down the recursion in order to spin, spin more and more and more lambda functions that all individually uh, deposit their data. So this is another asynchronous approach because we don't have to go back the recursion tree in order to resolve you know, the whole chain. Right. But each lambda function itself has the capability of recording, handling, and shutting down um, the analysis. So is this something that is just like, let's say that I'm an independent lab somewhere, or I'm a lab in the United States or whatever, and I, uh, I I run the test and then I get that sequence. Is this something I can just put into this service and then that service will run that calculation for me and come back and say, you know, this, this strain uh, is most popular or m occurs most likely in XYZ? That's exactly right. That's exactly the idea. And this is so valuable because Research or the pathology labs, they might have their own data from their local environment, like from the local country, which they don't necessarily um, are in a position of sharing with the world yet. And therefore, being able to merge these two things of the international data with the local data, because serverless allows you to have different data sources in different accounts, um, this is, I think, is going to be crucial going forward, especially around. Um, with the vaccination status mm. and things like that, where we do want to know um, if if the virus managed to escape, should it escape um, from uh, from the vaccine? Like all of this is really crucial information to keep monitoring um, the progression going forward. Right now, you get some of the data. Was it GIS eight or something like that, where you get um, some data from? Uh, and I remember you mentioning something along the lines of you were trying to uh, look at different characteristics, like maybe different symptoms that people were having or, or different things like that, but the reporting was wildly inaccurate or it was very variant. It, it varied uh, greatly. Um, I think one of the, the examples you gave was, um, you know, like the loss of smell, for example, it was described multiple ways in free text. Um, so that's the kind of thing. So what were you doing with that, um, trying to, to bring all, like what was, the, what was the purpose of trying to collect that data? 
Yeah, so GISAID is the largest database for genomic um, COVID virus data around the world. They originally came from um, influenza data collecting and then very quickly moved towards COVID and provided this fantastic resource for the world and the pathology labs of the world to deposit their data. But in, you know, in that effort, in order to make that data, to collect the crucial data, the genomic data for tracing and tracking, um, made that available, they not necessarily implemented um, the medical data collection part in a way that, um, that enables the analysis that we, that we would want to do. Mm -hmm. Partly because of the technical um, aspects, but mainly because it requires a lot more um, ethical and data responsibility and security um, consideration in order to get access to that kind of data. Mm -hmm. So therefore, all they had was a free text field with every sample to sort of have, if the pathology lab had that information, to quickly annotate how the patient was doing. And this clearly was a crude proxy for what we actually would have needed. Right. We would have needed to have the exact um, definition of the diseases, um, ideally annotated in an interoperable way using terminologies. And this is basically what we've developed. So we're using FHIR, which is um, a uh, the most accepted terminology approach really around the world, um, which allows you to catalog certain responses. So anosmia, instead of saying anosmia, which is the loss of sense of smell, it has a specific code attached to it. Okay. And therefore, this code is universal and it's relatively straightforward to just type in the free text and then the tool that we've developed automatically converts that into the right code. And this should be the one, this should be the information that is that is recorded. Similarly, in the future, what kind of vaccines um, a person has received and so on. And then from there, we can identify or we can run the analysis of saying that 20 thousand letters in the SARS-CoV-2 genome, so the COVID virus genome, any one of those mutations, is it associated with how virulent or how infectious um, a certain strain is, right. or whether it has a different um, disease progression, or it might be um, whether it's resistant to a certain vaccine. All of this is really critical, but because there are 20,000 letters, these associations can be um, very spurious. So in order to get to a statistical significant level, we do need to have a lot of data. Right. And currently this data is just not available. Um, like we went through and we looked at for the annotations where we had good quality data of how the patient was going. I think we ended up with 500 um, instances out of the 200,000 that were submitted back then. Um, that were good enough annotated in order to do this association analysis of mm -hmm. saying which mutation is associated with an outcome. And while we found some association specifically in the spike protein that would be um, affecting how virulent or how, um, you know, what kind of disease a, this, this particular strain could cause, it definitely was not statistically significant. Right. So we definitely need to repeat that once we have more data and better annotated data. Yeah. But that's pretty amazing if you can, um, if you could say someone's loss of smell, for example, is associated with 
you know, particular uh, variants of the of of the uh, of the disease, um, you know, or that you know certain ones are more more deadly or more contagious or whatever. And then um, if you were able to track that around the world, you you'd be able to make decisions about whether or not you might need a lockdown because there was a very you know contagious strain or something like that, or you know maybe target where vaccines go in certain areas based off of um, you know the the, uh, the 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 I guess the deadliness of of, of that strain or whatever it was. Um, that's uh, that's that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. So rather than shutting down completely, um, you know, based on any strain, it could be more targeted in the future, and it probably will be more targeted in the future. All right. Now, is this something where everything you've built, all of this information you've learned that when, um, you know, the next pandemic comes, because that's another thing I hear quite a bit is like the next pandemic is probably right around the corner, which is not comforting news, but uh, unfortunately, probably true. Um, is this the kind of thing, though, where with all this stuff you're putting into place that the next round of data is just going to be so much better um, and we're going to be so much better prepared? Absolutely. That is definitely the the aim. I mean, you do have to learn from the past. And having this instance happen firmly puts it from the theoretical space where everyone was talking about before to, uh, oh, yes, this is actually happening. So it was a paper published in um, in Nature the last month, uh, sorry, last year. It was around, okay, how much money do we actually, have you lost um, through this particular pandemic? I mean, the lives lost, mm. obviously, are. Um, you know, invaluable, but the, you know, looking at the pure economics of it. So how much money have we lost and how much will this, um, you know, damage go on to the future? And therefore they did a cost benefit analysis of saying, how much do we, are we willing to invest in order to prevent anything like this from happening in the future? Right. And the, the figures that they came up with, and this was, you know, way back when we didn't really even know what the complete um, effect was, and we still don't know. But even back then, the, the figures were astronomical. So I think there's going to be a huge shift in order to um, see the value of being prepared, the value of the data, the value of collecting all this information, the value of making science-based decisions. I think it's going to, you know, be nice. <laughs> a different, a change of pace, at least here in the United States. <laughs> I'll be very optimistic that going forward, we're much more prepared than we ever were in the past. That's awesome. Um, all right, so you are part of this transformational bioinformatics group, and so you have sort of the capabilities to work on some of these serverless things and build some other products or some other uh, solutions to help you do this research. But I can imagine there are a lot of small labs who never mind having the money to pay for, uh, or small you know, research groups that, that don't necessarily have the money to pay for all this compute power, but also you know, maybe don't have the expertise to build um, you know, these really cool things that you've built that are obviously you know, incredibly helpful. So um, what have you done in terms of making sure that your, you know, the technical side of the work that you've done, um, you've made that accessible to other other researchers. Yeah, absolutely. So my group, the Transformation Bioinformatics Group, is very privileged in that we do have a lot of support from CSRO in order to, um, you know, to build the latest newest tools with the latest newest compute. As you said, other other researchers around the world are not as privileged. Therefore, the tools that we developed 
um, we want to make as broadly applicable and as broadly accessible as possible so that other people can build on those achievements that we had. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's working together to really you know, move into the right direction together is what, um, what is not only rewarding, but is also necessary in order to keep up with the threats that are all around us. So with that, um, the digital marketplaces are, from my perspective, the way, the way to do this. So typically, digital marketplaces, um, you think of that it's an EC2 instance that is spun up with a Windows machine or something mm -hmm. like that, where you subscribe to a specific service that is set up uh, for a fixed consumption. But from my perspective, it's sort of because it allows you to spin up a specific environment with a specific workflow in there that you have access to because it's in your account you can build upon so therefore this is the perfect reproducible research and collaborative research approach where someone can put in the like us can put in the the initial offering and other people can build on top of that and this is what we've done with variant spark which is our um genome analysis technology. So in order to find association between disease genes and um, certain diseases. And this is a hugely complicated workflow because you first have to normalize stuff, you have to quality control things, you then have to actually run variance bug um, and then visualize the outcomes. So typically, you know, being able to describe all of that and for other people to set it up in their account from scratch without you know, without us helping them, it is complicated. And this is basically the, the, uh, the bane of the existence of bioinformatics research in that the workflows are so complicated that reproducing them is typically impossible. Whereas right. now we can just make a Terraform or CloudFormation or ARM template or whatnot, um, put it into the marketplace for other people to describe to, to, to spin it up in the way that we intended to, that we optimized to, and then from there, they have this perfectly reproducible base um, in order to build to build upon. So unfortunately, this whole thing, VariantSpark is an elastic MapReduce offering. Mm -hmm. And the marketplaces are currently only looking at easy 2 instances as sort of their basis, the virtual machine as their basis. Right. What we definitely need is a serverless marketplace. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. So you mentioned something about the data. Um, so why why not have you know uh, have your organization run this in your you know uh, AWS account, for example, and then have other people just send their data to you? That certainly would be an option. The problem typically with medical data is that um, there's a security and a privacy concern around it because genomic data is the most identifiable data you can think of. Right. You only have one genome and it encodes basically your future disease risks um, and everything uh, that uh, basically that is the blueprint of your body. So from our perspective, keeping that data as secure as possible is the aim of the game. Never mind that it's so large. <laughs> that we want to shift it around, but I think right. the security, the security element, is um, what really sells me to the idea of bringing the compute to the data, bringing the compute and the structure to the securely um, protected data source of the researchers or the um, research organization 
that have and hold the data and is responsible for the data. It also allows dynamic consent, for example, where people that consent for their data to be used for research, they can revoke that. So it's a dynamic process. Mm -hmm. And being able to have the data in one place and handle the data in one place directly allows this to be executed faithfully, robustly, and uh, swiftly. Right. Which I think is absolutely crucial in order to build the trust so that people can donate or you know lend their data to uh, genomic research. Yeah, I mean, that, that is certainly something from a privacy standpoint where you think about um, you're right. It's like a, it's, it's very, it's like everything, everything about you is encoded in your, uh, in your DNA. Right. So like, there's a lot of information there, but now I'm curious if somebody else was running this in their environment, um, after they do the processing on this. And again, I am just completely ignorant as to what happens on the other end of this thing, but, um, the data that they get out of the other end of this thing, is that something that can be shared and can be used for collaboration? Yeah. So this, Typically, the process is you run the analysis, you get the result out, you publish that, and it sort of ends there. Um, I think in order to for, for genomic data to be truly used in the clinical practice and to inform anything from disease risk to what kind of treatment someone should receive, what kind of adverse drug reactions they are at risk of, um, it really needs to be a bit more integrated. So therefore... Mm -hmm. The result that comes out of it should somehow feed back into the self-learning um, environment. So therefore, that, that's, that's one avenue. The other avenue is that well, the, the results that are coming out, um, they really need to be validated and processed. And therefore, typically, there are um, wet labs that um, investigate that this theoretical analysis is correct in order to move forward. Interesting. Yeah. So, cause I'm, I'm just thinking like, I know I've seen these companies that supposedly analyze your DNA and, or, and they try to come up with like, you know, are you, um, are you more susceptible to carbohydrates or more, you know what I mean? Like th those sort of things there. Um, now while that may be a, you know, that may be a lofty, um, you know, endeavor for some, I'm thinking more like, you know, people who are allergic to things or environmental exposures that may trigger certain things like tying all that information together. Um, and knowing if that, I mean, I'm assuming that has to be encoded in your DNA somewhere like your, um, you know, your, uh, I, I guess your or allergies, or I keep using that example, but um, so how does that information get shared? Is that just something that is like way out of scope, um, you know, because you've got people testing just their own group of samples and doing specific analysis on it, but then not sharing that back to a larger pool where like everybody can sort of look at that? Mm. Definitely that is the aim you know, going forward. And the Global Alliance for Genomic Health is putting things in place in order to enable this data sharing on a global scale. And um, so the, the serverless beacon that we've developed is um, moving along the line as well to make it more efficient for individual research labs to light their own beacon in order to share their results with mm -hmm. the rest of the world, like the $15 uh, per, per month in order to <laughs> share data with the world. But I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the trust, in terms of the processes um, to, to make this actually a reality within the next, I don't know, five years. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it definitely is, a, is, is the aim and ultimately this is the need. And, you know, but you know, an element to that is also that the human genome is incredibly complex. 
and therefore the there the, there is no real one to one relationship right. between a mutation and a, a, you know an outcome. So we do know that, for example, for cystic fibrosis, it's one mutation that causes this deadly, devastating disease. But typically, it's a whole range of different exacerbation factors, resilience factors that work together, and it's very personal, um, the kind of risk that it generates. In order to quantify this risk, we need to have massive amounts of data, massive amounts of examples of which kind of combination is causing what kind of outcome. Right. And in order to do that, probably putting all the data in the same place is not going to happen ever. And therefore, sharing the models that were created on individual subparts and refining the model models on a global level, like sharing machine learning compute models, I think is probably going, um, going to be the future. And this is a really interesting and exciting space and a new space as well where it's sort of a combination of secret sharing and distributed um, machine learning in order to uh, you know, build models that truly capture the complexity of the human genome. Yeah. Well, it's certainly amazing and fascinating stuff. And I am glad we have people like you that are working on this stuff because um, it is it is really exciting in terms of where you know uh, where we're going just I mean not only just tracking and tracing diseases and and creating vaccines but getting to the point where we can start you know curing other diseases that that are uh, um, you know that are plaguing us as well I think that is uh, that's just amazing and I think it's really cool that serverless is playing a part Absolutely, absolutely. So my goal is really to bring the world together and see the value of scientific research and bring that scientific research into industry practices. Awesome. All right. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge with me. I don't think I understood half of what you said, um, <laughs> but that's just, but again, like I said, I'm glad we have people like you working on this stuff. Um, if people want to reach out to you or find out more about uh, uh, CSIRO and, and some of the other research and things that you're doing, how to, or they want to, you know, they want to use some of your tools, how do they, how do they do that? Yeah. The easiest is to go to our webpage, which is bioinformatics.csro.eu. Um, or find me on LinkedIn, which is allpower.de, and start the conversation from there. All right. That sounds great. I will get all that information in the show notes. Thanks again, Dennis. Fantastic to be here. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Dennis Bauer for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, New Relic. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 94. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.